0: Recognizing a communist physical appearance counts for nothing If he openly declares himself to be a communist we take his word for it If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication he may be a communist If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice She may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently
1: and today we are bringing one of them out of the shadows onto the Farming God podcast, a show focused on ways to live in America's spiritual revolution. In this interview, I read an excerpt from a Robert F. Kennedy speech. See the video of that speech and sign up for the Farming God newsletter at farminggod.org. With no further ado, allow me to draw out from the dark underbelly of America Scott G., a communist. I, I tend to ask people when I meet them, so what, what's your thing?" And sometimes I might get uh, their place of employment or maybe what they do for fun. Usually there's a pause and kind of an uncertainty about the question itself, but For you, immediately when I asked the question, you responded with a quick, oh, I'm a communist.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's an easy easy question for me.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, that kind of consumed the rest of my night with just berating you with questions. Mm -hmm. And some of those questions I want to ask you again today, but I'd like to start with, I normally ask people about their spiritual upbringing Uh, The the podcast is called Farming God.
3: Oh, Um, I didn't even
1: know the name of the podcast. Okay. (laughs) You don't know what you got into. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I just know you. I just know Ray.
1: (laughs) So, I I mean, that's a broad question. You can take it any way you want. Uh, Just, like, talk about where you came from.
2: Yeah. um, So, growing up, church was the the center and the boundaries of my social life. Um, we didn't really well except for some family. We spent a little bit of time with my my aunt and her family but other than that I went to a little private school that was based in the church that I that we went to so all the kids that I knew in elementary school were in the same church and um, I did like after school activities, like the Awana program, which is like where you memorize Bible verses and stuff. And so um, it's kind of weird because spirituality wasn't really there for me, but church was my whole life. Um, I asked Jesus into my heart whenever I was way too young to even know what that means. I was like five or six or something and yeah i really have no idea what i meant whenever i said that i did that but i did that and got baptized and um um throughout that whole process i never i never felt anything special though i didn't even know there was anything special to feel um i had no clue what spirituality was i didn't see it in my parents i didn't see like like to me church was this social event that was kind of stuffy uh and a little stressful like getting there on time um was always like a little bit of a hassle because my family was perpetually late to stuff so we're stressed out and my dad's like tailgating people because he's a really aggressive he like used to race cars and stuff and he's just a real aggressive driver and um um yeah, so, uh, and I was, like, you know, goof around, and, like, I would do stuff, like, if I had a stopwatch, or, like, you know, I had a watch on my wrist, and I would, like, time prayers that were, like, the the preacher, you know, he'd pray, and I'd time it, and, like, show my friends, like, look, seven minutes and four seconds, like, holy shit. I, don't rem- I remember that really distinctly. It was, I don't, I don't remember the seconds, but it was definitely, like, seven something. That was the... It was shocking, shocking to me. So it was like I just did all the things that a normal kid does with their social life, um, just with with my church, because that was the entire context. Like that that was everything I had to work with. So I just like was a kid there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So moving on from the kid point. Yeah. uh, At some point.
1: Uh, you came to the fire pit with me and said, "I'm, I'm a communist." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what happened between uh, little Scott with the stopwatch to uh-huh. communist Scott?
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, so what happened in between? Um.
1: I guess we could talk about more what I mean. If you see any of these influences in as you growing up, like what kind of led you to seeing the world in
2: this way. So I um, I think I've always had like a skepticism of authority. Um, I experienced that in the church. So there's like a thread there is oh you know this is pretty this is, I, I see a connection here. Um, my church fell apart whenever I was like 12 or something like that. Um the I I've stumbled aco- across an article on Wikipedia that was about like a certain kind of church. I can't remember what it was, but it's like in usually an evangelical Christian church that is around like a personality, like a certain person that starts the church. Mm-hmm. And I read I was reading the article like, "Oh, this is interesting, kind of reminds me of the church I grew up in." And it said um Whenever that person dies, the church usually falls apart. It devolves into, like, really complex politics and all that. And that's what happened. Um, So, yeah, the church that I grew to fell apart. And um, there was factions and power struggles. And, you know, my dad got kind of involved. And so I, um... Hmm. I don't know. That just seems connected in some way. Um, Yeah. So... I saw, Hmm. I guess like fast forwarding a lot, um, but with that similar, I had that similar view of like, I don't necessarily trust the people that are running things. Like I look around me, um, most people that, you know, as a kid and growing up, most people I knew and most people I saw were living what looked like unfulfilled, uninteresting lives borderline like and and I grew up in a really comfortable like suburb Mm -hmm. and so I didn't see the like abject poverty and the pain that I now like recognize and is central to my like way of going about the world is like a recognition of that so everyone around me was comfortable but unfulfilled and um uh
1: Do you remember the first time you were exposed to
2: communism? Hmm. Um, I remember. I remember making a poster in my U.S. history class, and I included the phrase, Stalin's ballin'. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) That's like. My, fir- my My only memory of any like reference to communist leadership while in school, um, when so, did the idea start to resonate with you? So, I was a libertarian at one point in like 2010, 2009, something like that, because i had I'd come to the conclusion that the U.S. government was doing something. And it was not doing what's good for people. It was doing something else. It was doing what was good for itself. Um, and um, so that was whenever I was like, okay, well, the government can't really be trusted. And uh, so I thought, so I, I think the kind of the first logical conclusion from that is like, okay, well, maybe libert- maybe less government power because they can't be trusted. Um, and so then it's like, so that would be more private power, more individual power, uh, libertarianism. And then um, I, uh, I, I went with that for a while. And it's like, it's really common for, you know, I'm a, I'm a white male from a fairly successful background. And um, so I have a reasonable chance of like quite a bit of success in that regard. Um, it's easy for me to get a job. It's easy for me to get opportunities. And so um, libertarianism makes sense from my background. And then uh, I dated someone, got into a relationship with someone, and she was uh, a lot more to the left. I think I'd call her a social democrat now. Um, And uh, she was a lot more, uh, well, she just saw that poverty is bad. And we ought to do something collectively to address poverty. Which I saw that libertarianism, like once she pointed that out, I was like, oh, libertarianism doesn't really do anything for the poor. Um, it kind of it, it relies on charity, really, is p- private charity. Um, but it, I you know, I look around and I see that private charity doesn't really handle it either. The U.S. government nor private charity are like taking care of the poor. And so that's when I started to think like, okay, yeah, okay, I see how big businesses are also not they're they're just doing whatever they want for themselves the U.S. government is doing whatever it wants for itself and then I started to see the connection between uh, big large corporations and the government like oh they're the same people mm-hmm. they go back you know what we call the revolving door um, the heads of industry go into regulatory agencies write regulations that benefit the heads of industry blah 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 so I started to see it's like okay they're they're all part of the two halves of the same club of people running the world for their own benefit yeah so eventually these ideas you start
1: to move on them and do you remember what form that first
2: took yeah um so yeah I got into this I started to become like what what I would call a leftist and then um I Occupy happened, Occupy Wall Street, etc. That was fall of 2011 and um, I was actually, I'd just gotten out of that relationship and was living with my parents and working in public schools and um, uh, feeling really purposeless, really like, you know, I was working in the high school that I graduated from living in my parents' house and it really felt like my life wasn't going anywhere. So whenever I saw this this thing building, I saw it on Reddit, I saw it online, um, this thing that seemed to be getting big that was oriented towards ending um, corruption and ending, well it, was, it said the corporate corruption of democracy and I thought well yeah, that's the thing. Um, The connection between the government and the big corporations is far too tight. Citizens United had been passed recently, um, removing a lot of the limits on uh, uh, campaign finance spending, stuff like that. Um, Yeah, so I got really, really involved with Occupy in Houston, where I was living at the time. Cool. Um, And so what did that look like? Um, I mean, it was... a. there's a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of, because uh, we used a process called consensus. And so that's like a way of running your meetings and um, a way of making decisions that is like radically democratic, I think is the idea. That um, if, and, and you can set it up however you want to, but in like pure consensus, if one person says, I don't like this decision, if we do this, then I don't feel like a part of this group. Like, like if we did this, I wouldn't want to be a part of this group anymore. If one person says that, then the decision doesn't pass. Everyone has to say, yes, I'm willing to go forward with this. Not like, yes, I think this is a great idea, but I'm willing to go forward with this. Okay. Um, and did that slow things down? A bit? Sure. It takes, it takes a lot of discussion. Yeah. Um, it does, but you learn how to, um, it's actually too much it takes too much discussion it, it really depends on the venue so it's occupy we're living like we're, we're out there living in a public park that uh is uh, you could call it a crack park it was already occupied actually um and um people are different people are there every day there's like in the first few meetings uh, 200 of us something like that and uh, so that's not the right venue for consensus. Yeah. Um, I lived in a co-op a couple of years later, 16 people, and um, I actually it was kind of funny what happened. I we used some like certain hand signals in consensus, and I went to the first co-op meetings, and because I was one of the founding members of the co-op, it was um, so yeah. I went to some of the meetings, and they were using the same hand signals, and so I was like, oh cool, consensus. I know how this works, because um, at Occupy meeting facilitator was like the main thing that I did. Um, It was for some reason, like people didn't want to do it. Um, And so I just ended up falling into that position over and over and over again. So now I know how to facilitate meetings and I know how to run a consensus meeting. And I assumed we were using consensus. And since nobody else really knew what we were doing either, we ended up using consensus. Um, The other co-op in the same system, they thought we were really foolish. For using consensus, they said it would never work. That for you know, for the uh, the obvious reasons, like it's too slow, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but we we did. We used consensus for the whole two years that I lived there, and it's so it's stable membership. You have the same people at every meeting. It's just a couple of you know a dozen, two dozen people, and um, you know the numbers varied, and consensus works beautifully in a in a system like that but in occupy it didn't work
1: so it didn't work in occupy what what did you learn from occupy moving forward? how could what happened there be used today and do you see any sort of i mean it was kind of visible in the bernie movement mm, i mm-hmm. guess yeah the trickle down from that I, I mean like where where does occupy go from
2: here so this is what i've you know i've been asked this a lot of times it's like well, what did Occupy accomplish is usually how people phrase the, the question. And w- the conclusion that I've come to is that um, it, ha- it had some limited effect in, in changing public discourse about like the 1% and the wealth disparity, stuff like that. It did have that effect. But primarily, Occupy had a profound effect on the people that were there. It changed us. It, um we had a radically different experience that we had never had before. I went and lived in a park for three months. Um, I got woken up at six in the morning by cops kicking me like, you know, not not hard, but, you know, they'd like kick me awake and tell me to get up and to stand up right now or they would arrest me. For no other reason than uh, they didn't want us to be there. And so they would enforce, there's like, there's some laws about lying down in public parks. So they would use whatever laws that they could to make our lives really difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I'd never experienced before. I mean, I was afraid of cops before um, because I used to smoke weed and I carried weed. And so, of course, I was like terrified of police, but I'd never had to live under the daily supervision and harassment of police the way the poor constantly have to and um i um that's
1: that's cool so that so for you especially now that you're in austin what does the communist movement look like here are you doing stuff at the Capitol, or what what do that the the activities look like and who are the people
2: that are involved yeah demographic so there's a bunch of different kinds of communists that's like uh the simplest thing to say about it is um yeah there's a bunch of different kinds of communists and um they uh we all disagree with each other and that's why that's (laughs) why we're different kinds of communists you know Uh um that's why you form a new group is because you think, well, that group is actually on the wrong track. And if that group were to succeed on the track that it's on, it'd actually be very problematic. You, you'll end up with another, another uh, Soviet Union where after 1955, they became an imperialist state, taking over other countries without you know, any kind of consent from the people. Um, so there's, you know, there's groups that are organizing, and that's the track they're on. We don't want to do that. This is a trial and error. It's like a scientific process where you experiment and you experiment. So the Soviet Union was an experiment, and we see how it failed. And um, so, so anyway, there's a lot of different groups with a lot of different ideas about uh, how how to proceed. Um, the group that I'm a part of is called Serve the People. Um, it's uh, It's multi-tendency, which means there's people from, so there's like Marxist-Leninist in it, there's Marxist-Leninist-Maoist in it, I think there's a Hojaist, which is, Hoja was like an Albanian communist or something (laughs) like that. Um, So there's, you know, different people with different ideas, um, but it primarily is um, uh, run by Marxist-Leninist-Maoists, and that's what I consider myself, a Maoist for short. Um, So... Uh, and then you know there's a there's an organization called Red Guards and they're like the uh, quote unquote official Maoist in Austin. There's no like you know there's no governing body. There's no one that they're accountable to. But they're Maoist. They formed a collective and they started serve the people. And so that gives them a certain amount of like leadership or credibility. Cool. Um, so in a in a typical week as a
1: communist in Austin, or maybe a month, or what just what sort of activities are are you guys up to generally
2: um yeah so um i'll tell you what's happening today what i'll tell you what i was texting about like 30 minutes ago um so uh we run self-defense classes uh we do those once a week um we were doing a youth class but we've been having trouble getting kids to come out to it and so we're actually canceling that so we had two a week now we're going to go back down to one um and a martial arts teacher He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a few years, um, so I, y'all might have heard of Richard Spencer. He's like one of the most famous Nazis in uh, American culture right now. Um, speaks about you know he's, he's a white supremacist. It's um, he's pretty outright about it, um, and so he was speaking at Texas A&M some months ago, uh, and uh, we went to shut it down. Um, so this is you know, this is a, a really interesting question is the question of free speech. Yeah, we deny yeah. free speech yeah. to fascists. We don't we we do our best to interrupt their right to free speech. We don't you know, not yeah. into it. Yeah. Um, can't spread their views. Uh, so we were in uh, college station trying to shut down the Richard Spencer event, which um, turns out it was there was actually so many liberals there that wanted to uh, listen to Richard Spencer and ask him, like, pointed questions at the end of his speech that we weren't even able to get into the event. There was like hundreds really? of liberal protesters there, and you know I make a distinction between myself and a liberal. A liberal is someone who supports capitalism, the dem- you know, the Democratic Party, that kind of thing. Um, so um, anyway, that didn't it didn't go great, but I was in a confrontation outside, and a what I like to call a free speech nerd, um, someone who will like who will stand up and defend a Nazi's right to, f- to speak freely. Um, uh, I've, we got into, uh, we were, we were in a shouting match of some kind and, uh, he ended up punching me. He just like, you know, <laughs> knocked me in the face and what? Uh, yeah, he <laughs> got me in the face and <laughs> it was the first time I, you know, I haven't been punched in like 15 years or something like that. I'm like, I don't, not really I haven't gotten into a lot of physical confrontations in my life. So what What was, would you say he was on the liberal side or the Nazi side of free, free um, speech? I mean, we call them proxy Nazis. Proxy they're Nazi. not quite Nazis. Like, they're not going to try to exterminate anybody, but they're going to make, you know, make really sure that a Nazi has a chance to spread their views. Wow. Um. He might have, you know, I have no idea what his politics were. He uh-huh. was... Free, he was a free speech nerd. I don't know what what he believes beyond that. Okay. Um, that free speech is sacred and good for everyone to have. I guess free physical contact is yeah. another one of his... Yeah, and I mean, I kind of get it because there was a lot of people yelling at him. He was kind of surrounded. Uh-huh. Um, and I probably, I think like, I yelled, like, right in his ear, like, really close, like, like, close enough to probably hurt and maybe even, like, damage his hearing a little bit, um, and I think that's what, like, flipped the switch from, you know, shouting match to he wanted to fight, uh, um, you know, I just get excited, you know, I get excited, um, so, so what else
1: besides, uh, getting in squabbles with nazis <laughs> oh th- so that was that was like
2: that was all background i'm sorry those there's a lot you know no, it's there's a cool. lot of stuff That's here a good story um so i told my friend brendan this i was like hey i got punched by my first nazi uh, you know i don't know if he's a nazi whatever um but uh and but Brendan is a martial artist and he was like, "Hey, nobody punches my friend. I'm going to come teach you how to fight." Like I, you're you know, you're going to be able to hold your own from now on because he knows I have like no fighting skill. <laughs> and um so that so we started to do the, to do the self-defense classes cuz he's actually driving up from San Antonio every couple of weeks and so it's like, "Okay, let's get as many people together as we can. Let's make it a class." And um so anyway, what's happening right now um what I was just texting about is there's another group, another guy got punched by a Nazi. Um, he's an Austin journal, gonzo journalist, he calls himself Kit O'Connell. Um, he's a leftist, and he did something uh, around a Trump rally, I don't know, a couple months ago, and he ended up getting into a fight with a, a fascist. And so he started, he organized, his, he started a group. The group organized a self defense workshop that's happening tomorrow at the same time, incidentally, as the self defense workshop that we do every week. And, um, so we were going to, uh, me and Brendan, the teacher of our self-defense class, uh, we were going to go over there a little bit early and just introduce ourselves and say, Hey, you know, we do this every week cause theirs is just a one-off class. And okay. so we want to let people know like, Hey, if you want to keep doing this, yeah. we do a class every week. Um, but then, um, uh, the thing that happened was that Austin socialist collective, Started collaborating with this organ with Kit O'Connell's organization. So he's like partnered up with like an official communist organization. I see. Um, And so they're so they're social democrats. Uh, So what they want to do is they want to get people elected into position. They they're like they want to get socialists into. Uh, to into Congress and get a socialist president and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing whereas we're revolutionaries we um, are sure that that won't work and that we need to build you know our strategy is completely different it's build base areas where like you have a neighborhood or a town where the police don't feel comfortable like the police aren't safe there anymore and the the community polices itself and runs its own you know runs its own uh, society So, you build base areas and you eventually take over uh, with a violent revolution. So, you know, big difference there. Um, Wow. Yeah. And um, so, Austin Socialist Collective, they're, you know, they're reformists. We call it, you could call them reformists, and we're revolutionaries. And uh, so, I just had to text Brendan. Well, um, I was told from the leadership of my organization. Uh, that we they just partnered with Austin Socialist Collective and we've been having major beef with Austin Socialist Collective. They've been they've released statements criticizing our program and um, uh, really talking like uh, they're talking out of their butts. They're uh, everything that they're saying is based on this one guy that came like a year ago for one afternoon and I've seen him. He he seems unhinged to me honestly. Whenever he posts on Facebook, he like he he. I'm just like amazed at the things that he says. Um, and I've like tested him a little bit, and he and he just makes up stuff about me. Um, because he's I've never met him, yeah. And he was like, No, I know you, you're this, this. He like makes up a lot of stuff anyway. So, so they, <laughs> they've been trying to drag our name through the mud. And this, so this, so if there's no, I mean, if there's
1: division within so much division with already, I'm guessing, a pretty small mm, mm-hmm. uh, overall majority, how. Is there? Do you see any benefit of working with people trying to elect, like get it started? Is that at all helpful
2: to at least get the ball moving, or not? It's um we see it as a distraction, um, and uh, because okay, so like FDR, he was like. Pretty leftist. A um, hundred years ago, the taxes on the wealthy were really high. It's like really like almost the best you could expect out of like the you know the current conditions are similar. A lot like B- what Bernie Sanders would have done. Yeah. And um, it doesn't take long. It takes a couple of decades, and all of those reforms get rolled back. And um, so there's there's historically there's never been a nation that. Actually had what we call a dictatorship of the proletariat or a situation where the working class is re- really has control over their own lives that got there through electing people into uh. office it's just never happened before, um, yeah. even though people have tried you know i'm what thousands of times something like that mm-hmm. like um, throughout history in you know hundreds of different countries it's been attempted it just doesn't work
1: so when I was at the bonfire with you um, fascinated by your <laughs> a claim to communism Uh i began asking you questions that i could tell by the way you responded (laughs) you had clearly heard them before Uh probably a couple months later i was i was reading christian apologetics which is basically like question answer um defending christianity Uh it's like god this reminds me a lot of uh scott's uh defending uh, communism. It's like when this thing is said, this is like a dead all response. That uh-huh. was cool. That's like it's just a fun tidbit that it reminded me of, of Paul Jackson way. But anyways, it'd be cool to go through like some uh, of these yeah, common. Good, good. I only have like a couple of them. They're not the crazy one, but I think the first one I I said. Um, was, I'm sure most people are thinking this too, but I think the first one I said was like it hasn't communism hasn't worked or something. Uh-huh. I, I'm guessing that's a pretty typical objection.
2: Sure, yeah it's it's really it's really easy. <laughs> that's the same face you gave me when I asked you at
1: the Podfire,
2: <laughs> kind of the patient grade school teacher head nod. Like, yes. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so should I launch into my apologetics? <laughs> yeah yeah, okay let's go for it (laughs) um okay so communism hasn't worked um so i think the something that i learned pretty recently and um i think is really helpful in in just like analyzing this situation is okay so communism hasn't worked well how long have people been trying communism um karl marx was writing in what like the 1860s 1870s something like that um I might, be, I might be like 50 years off, honestly. But uh, communism as an idea has only existed for uh, like less than 200 years. I can safely say that. Um, so let's, you know, let's draw a parallel. So before capitalism was feudalism. So feudalism, capitalism, communism. That's the idea. That's what we're going for is transition from capitalism to communism. Um, uh, it took capitalism... Over two hundred years to replace feudalism. It wasn't like, ta-da, capitalism, and it just worked. It actually took a lot of trial and error, and um, uh, and we and you actually see like in, you know in early examples of capitalism, uh, incredible human rights abuses, like un- unbelievable like disaster, uh, starvation, etc. Um, and actually that stuff never stopped happening with capitalism. It's still happening with capitalism. Sure. And so I think you could, if that, if that's your, if that's how you're going to measure it, um, then capitalism took longer to get where it is now and has never actually achieved a working state. Um, every year, 20 million people die under capitalism, um, uh, from easily preventable, uh, problems like uh, starvation we have enough food for everybody it's a, purely a distribution issue it's like literally it's because they don't have enough cash to get the food that's the only reason people die of starvation and um, uh, like malaria stuff that we have medicine for sure. it'd be fine if we you know all we have to do is pay for it and um, uh, mal- yeah malnutrition stuff like that so that's the first thing I would say is you know consider that to transition from one economic system to another, always takes centuries sure and um
1: uh and the yeah. one 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 that we already hit on i think was the free speech obviously oh yeah so, yeah and i think that's kind of at the forefront of especially the the kind of liberal that i tend to be around is uh-huh. i want to be able to
2: say what what i feel right um so the um and Um, and I want to say, you know, we're moving on, it's fine, but on the other, the other question, there's, there's a lot more to say about, like, why, uh, of how we should treat that question. Yeah, let's just do, like, the highlights. Sure, sure. Give me the Um, pointers. I'm going to say, really quick on the other one, Uh everything you've ever heard about communism is propaganda from the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, really just, like, consider that, uh, Mao didn't kill 70 million people. Um. Things like that. Uh, so, like, you know, obviously there's a lot to unpack there. But, so, the, yeah, those are the two things to remember is takes a long time to build a new economic system. And it's a trial and error process. Um, and also, we've heard a lot of propaganda. Sure. Uh, okay. So the, okay, cool.
1: So the free speech.
2: Yeah, free speech. So um, the, the most, I don't know, the first thing that comes to mind is a, a friend of mine who is... Uh, He's uh, they're they're an incredible person and one of the main organizers in Austin and they pointed out to me or they they offered me this perspective on free speech that um, uh, free a government allows free speech uh, in inverse proportion to uh, no in direct proportion to how secure it feels. So let's look at the US government. It is quite possibly the most secure government in the world. Um, it is uh, gonna be a long time before someone overthrows the US government. Um, therefore, they, you're allowed to say whatever you want because you're not a threat to them. Um, and so this is, this is the main thing, It's just considering that uh, we don't have free speech in America because of the like, high moral character of Americans. We have free speech in America because of the <clears throat> the hegemony, the mm-hmm. undisputed control that the US government has over this land. Interesting.
1: Okay, so maybe another one would be that uh, like corruption comes with power, and we'd just be replacing the next leader with, and they'd become corrupt too, just
2: like the current leaders of the system. Sure. Um, um, yeah, the, and. Quick response. <laughs> sure, and so that's the difference between a Marxist-Leninist, and a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist is how we treat that question. Okay. Um, so uh, this happened in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, it happened in China, which we recognize the Soviet Union before a certain point and China before a certain point were the best example, the most successful examples of communism. Um, uh, so the the idea that a Maoist holds to is that the the site of the formation of the new bourgeoisie, and I'll unpack this sentence a little bit, the site of the formation of the new bourgeoisie is the Communist Party. So the bourgeoisie is the ruling class. It's the very small amount of people that are running the world for their own benefit. And, um, communist revolution is removing the bourgeoisie from power and replacing them with working class people, um, that, that also run things in a dramatically different way. Um, but it turns out, as we learned in the Soviet Union, as we learned in China, that the communist party, the people that get put in charge become a new bourgeoisie. They become a new ruling class. Um, and this, you know, this is what you said. It happens. And, so it's a trial and error process we've learned that that happens we didn't know that the first time we had a communist revolution we uh it was you know no one can know you don't know until you try and so um this was the major the major split and well it's okay so Stalin had his purges. Uh, that's generally recognized. He like kept on killing and removing people from yeah. his government. He didn't understand that being the kind of manager that you are in the Central Committee at the head of the Communist Party turned it. It like warps your mind. Mm-hmm. This power corrupts, and um, so he thought that these people were infiltrators or spies or something like that. But he didn't. He didn't understand that their consciousness was being transformed by their relationship to the means of production. This is something, you know, this is how we look at things is what is your relationship to the means of production and uh, what does that determine about how you think about the world? Um, and so the bourgeoisie, their minds get twisted by owning everything. Um, and, you know, we could go, there's there's a lot of ways to go into, like, how that actually happens. Sure. But the same thing happens to the Communist Party once they're in charge. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you need the cultural revolution, um, which w- that was... Uh, in 1966 or so, about 16 years after the Chinese Communist Revolution, was whenever um, Mao realized this. He, like, fully distinguished, like, oh, like, the bourgeoisie is, is forming again. It's already happened in the Soviet Union, and it's happening right now in China. And so he launched the Cultural Revolution, which is a massive call for the people to rise up and, th- and like, it's, an, it's another revolution, Where basically, like, um, you throw out all the revolutionary leaders that have taken power through the revolution, and so it's like it's a process of constant revolution of recognizing that um, when someone is in power, when they're a manager, and if they're not held totally accountable, then they will become a new bourgeoisie, and you'll have what you you have now in China, which is um, most of the Communist Party members are billionaires, something like that. It's like you know, it's it's totally the same thing again. Yeah. So the problem is they didn't recognize that until 16 years in and mm. so the new bourgeoisie had already entrenched its power and now we call china a state capitalist country they've reverted okay. back to capitalism even though they still call themselves yeah sort of communist yeah yeah they definitely communist. claim communism yeah, yeah. um but they're not maoists yep. um interestingly enough the Weird. they rejected mao there was like this was the split that happened um in like 1976 or something like that where mao was like guys, we are, like, we're back on the road to capitalism, and of course, a lot of people were like, no, no, we just mm-hmm. need to, you know, we need to uh, increase our production and get our factories going better, and, um, you know, because we got to be able to compete with the capitalists, that was, you know, that's the line, Yeah. Um, is we have to, and, and it's, see, that's the thing, this is the the contradiction in communism, is that whenever you're a communist country surrounded by a capitalist country... It's really difficult to survive. It's really difficult to compete. It's really difficult to get what you need because, like, with, um, I mean, North Korea is not communist, but, um, because like Cuba and the US. Sure. Yeah. That's embargo. maybe a better example. Sure. Cuba was also never communist, but they were, oh, really? they were closer. Okay. Um, and, um, so, yeah. So these capitalist countries, they um, they have trade embargoes and they basically make it as hard as possible for you to succeed and do what you need to do as a country. Yeah. And, and so that's the. Uh, so the the contradiction in inside a communist country is that. Uh, some people are going to be wanting, go, wanting to go back to capitalism, and some people are going to be wanting to go forward to communism, and all the capitalist countries, all the rest of the capitalist countries in the world are going to exploit that contradiction. Yeah. And uh, so there's vast amounts of pressure to return to capitalism.
1: And it was interesting when I was in Beijing this fall doing the, a series on Christianity in China. I waited in line for like an hour and a half just uh-huh. to, to see Mao. Because oh. you can still see him. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, like, people were really into it. Sure. And old, especially the older Chinese people. Some younger ones that... And I was trying to talk to them, and I, it, the stuff was getting lost in translation. But when we got through and got into the temple and everything, no cameras or anything are allowed, it was kind of like this bowing motion was going on with a lot sure. of the older Chinese Yeah, a lot of respect men. for Mao. And it was, it was such a contradiction to me because everything I read
2: is just that all the people who died during his his reign yeah 70 million yeah eleventy billion, half of the life in the known universe died yeah. under mao's reign <laughs> i can hear the sarcasm <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i mean and then after
1: once he was died i guess china's poverty went down from like 50 percent to like eight percent mm. or something i mean we can whatever those numbers mean but it was a really interesting paradox, uh-huh. like like what Mao actually was. Like the love, did they love him? Did they hate him? Do we uh-huh. love him? Do we hate him? Uh-huh. But what what other questions are there? Am I missing any of like the basic hmm. like the go to ones? We hit on freedom of speech. Uh, rulers will be corrupt. Uh, human nature. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah.
2: That's that's the other major one okay. is, um uh, that communism doesn't recognize human nature. That humans are fundamentally greedy and awful or something like that yeah um and the i guess the the boilerplate response to that is that i've seen humans in like a bunch of different you know i've been around humans my whole life and um (laughs) weird uh, yeah and uh, i've noticed that humans are really sensitive to their environment and really sensitive to what's expected of them and Uh, you know I've worked in education and so like that you kind of see you get this little experimental space of like there's these kids and they're capable of uh, great destruction and uh, capable of you know great learning and uh, different things can happen in a classroom and I think what's expected is um, is one of the primary determiners of like what a human does and so to say that human nature is uh, like greedy and selfish and violent um, when every human that you've ever met has been raised in the Thunderdome, basically of capitalism where um, uh, you are like people where 20 million people are starving to death every year and we're literally competing with each other to avoid starving um, in an artificial way, because there's enough resources for all of us. So, you know, we're living in the Thunderdome and people are brutal and people say that that's how, you know, that's how people are. But I would say that that's, that's how people react to the conditions that they're in. And when you create the conditions of cooperation, um, then people are, um, people are cooperative. Whenever, whenever we're in a society that's competitive, then you see people being competitive. I'd like to paraphrase something that
1: Robert Kennedy said a couple months before his assassination. For too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values for the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States by that, counts air pollution and cigarette advertising. And ambulances to clear the highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder and chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. What do you think
2: about that? Um, I think that that's it's poetic. It's um, uh, w- well said. Um, I, th- I don't have like a lot of reaction to it. It's it some. I mean, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a nice sentiment. I mean, he's right that the the measurement of the profit of the capitalist system, which is what the you know GDP is. Is completely um, alienated from human value. I'd agree with that. Um, Yeah. Cool. Yeah. um, The only thing that I would like disagree with on it is, well, I mean, so it sounded like there was a little bit of like good old-fashioned American individual exceptionalism, Mm -hmm. Um, just like a little, a little taste of that, which I would say is a problematic attitude. Um, The focus on the individual. Um, whereas like we really evolved to be a collective, like to come from a collective mindset and, you know, tribal society and all that. And we really function best whenever we're accountable to a group of people that really cares about us. Like that's when humans are at their best is whenever they're really closely connected with a a group of people that they really care about.
1: That it ends with why we are proud that we are Americans. Sure. Is is
2: that, is that the collective kind of thing or... Um I would say no. I would say that um uh the collective that's that's way too big. Um the uh, the collective that really like serves is the collective that's small enough for you to like hold it in your head and really like well is it, this is actually something that I think about like every day is community and what is community? Um and does community exist in the United States um, I've never like my my take on it right now as I begin this inquiry is no I've never seen one I've never seen a community before um, and I think that one measure of a community or one one way you know you have a community is if there's a group of people um, within which you have some kind of reputation where people know who you are and they and and it matters and uh, what you do and there's going to be social consequences for things that you do. Um, so America as a whole doesn't, doesn't meet that requirement. You can get away with anything in America. There's almost total anonymity as an American. Yeah. I, we don't have a lot of time left, but I
1: I do have a couple more questions. Is, is there an ongoing, the possibility for a dialogue on, what it means to live the good life like once once this i communism i don't know if you'd use the word ideal is reached Uh uh-huh is is there room to keep talking about is there room for a kind of a discourse on what makes like what is the good life i
2: guess sure um i would say that all you have to do is um look into communist countries that were like when they were actually communist and you'll see that the discussion on how to live a fulfilled life is the dominant force in society. Okay. Um, and like radical uh, self-determination, uh, especially in the workplace. Cause I mean, before, you know, in capitalism and communism, this is true that your relationship like like I brought it before, your relationship to the means of production, what you do to help keep this whole thing running, is gonna is it's always gonna be the most important part of your life, mm-hmm. and it's gonna shape the way you think and the way you feel. And so power in that realm is central to communism, is giving you know giving people power over that, and um, yeah, so it's like it's almost like tedious how much people talk about how to make their (laughs) lives what they want it's like you know it's a lot of meetings happen under communism (laughs) and that's the main subject is how do we make this what we want it to be what about spirituality is there room for it i think so um there's um i know quite a few communists who are uh, muslim uh so it's I, I see room for it in my social circles yeah. um, I mean Karl Marx is the one that said that religion is the opiate of the masses yeah. and so the general idea is that um, that religion that formal religion uh, slowly withers away under communism that it's just not needed mm-hmm. um, and I think that you can never take away you can't really even touch people's spirituality it's it's so it's such a private thing and so I think no matter what our system is people are going to have their own personal spirituality yeah well Scott
1: I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this and although there may be some things that I don't know if I agree with yet you've at least made me think about and like force me to ask tough questions because our conversations even though they've been limited they've uh-huh. really caused a lot of my free time to like replay them mm, and think about them and especially in today when we see things as two sides it's nice to remember that there's not even just three or four or five sides to anything uh-huh. It's there's there's more than <laughs> more than what we can perceive yeah so yeah. i I'd really like to thank you for that
2: uh-huh yeah
1: you have anything else to say did we hit on everything we oh, covered there's, there's we, so many we covered things. all of communism. There's so <laughs> many things that we skipped
2: um, <laughs> what is what do I want to leave you with oh, we feed people whenever whenever you said like what do you do in a typical yeah, week we yeah. mostly feed people um, so the self-defense thing was just kind of like that's what's happening today is this drama <laughs> about the self-defense <laughs> thing um, yeah cool thanks Scott
3: mm-hmm.
1: Log on to farminggod.org to see the Robert F. Kennedy speech and sign up for the newsletter that all of America is talking about. Signing off, I'll leave you with the words of Edward Murrow. Good night and good luck.
3: No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck.